Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to begin where I left off with the children with a map and a, a GPS. With satellites in the heavens and electronics in our hands, we have some amazing accuracy. My skipper and I can pour over satellite images of sea color and temperature and, and pick a spot miles out in the ocean and then plug the latitude and longitude figures into a GPS and motor out 30, 40, 50 miles out into the ocean. We can drive to within 30, 40, or 50 feet of the numbers we picked. We usually don't, though. We usually start fishing as soon as we see any sign of life. But the truly comforting part is on the way home. Because after wandering around, chasing tuna all day, the coordinates of the mouth of Tillamook Bay are already in the GPS. And it will faithfully tell us the display, the course, the distance, and the time to arrive, given our current speed. But even with that amazing accuracy, if conditions go south, fog rolls in or the clouds come down, we don't just charge in because 30 or 40 or 50 feet just isn't safe at the South Jetty. By contrast, the Star of Bethlehem displays a divine accuracy. Modern astronomical computer models it makes it possible to wind the clock backwards to display the heavens over any particular place on Earth for any day, or night rather, for millennia. And a number of researchers have undertaken to capture the star, to see what the Magi saw. And it's a great idea. I mean, the list of candidates, though, is huge. It includes the convergence of planets, the appearance of comets, the eruption of supernova. But then again, it could be miraculous in the truest sense of that word in which case no model could ever predict or find it. And to be honest, our text for today is much more limited. Matthew simply writes, for we saw his star in its rising. Whatever it was, it must have been spectacular in its rising, because the Magi understood the splendor of the star as a call to worship. This much the text does support. Where is the king of the Jews who has been born, they asked. We have come to show reverence to him, to worship him. There is a, a simplicity, even a strangeness, to the great events that God records for us in Holy Scripture. Christmas, the Epiphany, the events of Holy Week, especially Easter and the Pentecost. We long for more details. Tell us what it was. We want to fill in the blanks. But all too often, when wise scribes add to the holy record, we tend to mask the marvel and dim the divine. We have come to worship him. Pros kuneo. Kuneo is the verb to kiss. But this compound word means more than the sum of its parts, because it also includes an element of casting oneself down to the ground to bend the knee. Grevin, discussing the meaning of this word to the ancient Greek, writes, the man who wants to honor an earth deity by kissing must stoop to do so. Both Odysseus and Agamemnon prostrate themselves and kiss the earth after a happy landing. To our culture, such behavior sounds very strange indeed. 
I mean, we can respect those in authority, but we do not do reverence. Yet as New Testament Christians, this word, which means reverence, to give reverence, is all over the Gospels and the book of Revelation. Listen in to Jesus speaking with the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Here we have both the noun and the verbal form of our word. And we need to recall in John's gospel, the temple, the new temple, is the body of Jesus hung on the cross. Weinrich writes, Those who will become the true worshipers of the Father in spirit and truth are those who are united with the Son in his worship of the Father. So what does this all mean to us here today? To worship, to bend the knee, to kiss the hand that blesses us is to be united with the Son in showing reverence to the Father. Everett Bulls offers this definition. Worship is everything we do toward God as a reaction to his mercy toward us. So let's go back to Jerusalem and the court of King Herod and the, the king of the Jews who has been born. The story, our text, is really a lesson concerning two kings, not three. We three kings of Orient are, were not kings until six centuries later. And the elaborate splendor of their train depicted in sacred art and the imaginative symbolism of their gifts is precisely what I warned about, masking the marvel and dimming the divine. Even our wise men, as our English ESV renders magoi, is not particularly helpful if we understand wise in a positive sense. That didn't happen until the 8th century, and especially with the Enlightenment that that tradition develops. Matthew doesn't help us out either. Perhaps their wisdom of connecting the star with the king of Judah goes all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. Surely the exiles carried scrolls with them into captivity. Had the Magi read Moses? Numbers 24. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Whatever the connection was, their wisdom got them to Jerusalem asking questions. Insert your own disingenuous gender wisecrack here. Men asking directions. <laughs> Thank God for GPS. The point is, their wisdom could not find the child. They needed to be guided by scripture to the correct town. Not Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, as Micah had foretold. And from Jerusalem, they need the guidance of the star. And it's noteworthy that it is only here that Matthew says that the star actually led them. Paul summarizes the irony of the scene in Herod's court this way. I think the implied reader, that would be us, are expected to respond, God revealed the truth about the Christ to a bunch of pagan fools, while those who were wise enough to figure it out for themselves missed it, just as Jesus said. Close quote. But back to my assertion that this is a story about two kings. Did Herod the king see the star? I don't know. Certainly not as a call to worship, despite what he says. Herod confused the star with the glitter around it the glitter of power and prestige surrounding kingship. 
It's not hard to read the motive behind the secret interview with the visitors and the diligent search he commands. These two kings are very different. One is King Herod. The other is King Jesus. One is in Jerusalem. One was born in Bethlehem. One lives in a palace. The other was born in a manger. One is powerful. The other is very vulnerable. One is wicked. And one is holy. What we see in King Herod is the sly deceit of Satan on the heart of a man. Herod's life is misguided. His life is twisted. His life is totally self-centered. If there was worship in his life at all, it was turned in upon himself. Or to use Augustine's famous phrase, in curvatus in se, which Luther develops much more readily later in his career. And here we need to consider our own reaction to the star. We've seen it, right? We've sung the alleluias of the season with enthusiasm. We've embraced the child king, King Jesus, by faith. We're here in this place to worship him. But we must also recognize the grasp of the glitter. Not for a minute am I suggesting that you are all little Herods. But we all know in our heart of hearts the tug of self that drove him. The pain of insults received, triggering that instant response of revenge. The thrill of praise, even if we know it to be hollow. The satisfaction of self-aggrandizement that just feeds on itself. Luther summarized it in his lecture to the Romans on this, this way. Our nature has been so deeply curved in upon itself because of the viciousness of original sin that it not only turns the finest gifts of God in upon itself and enjoys them, but it also seems to be ignorant of this very fact, that in acting so iniquitously, so perversely, and in such a depraved way, it is even seeking God for its own sake. We would be little kings, and God one of our subjects. But there are not 50 or 60 kings in the story or here today. There's only these two, King Herod and King Jesus. And despite the contrast I talk about, they do have one commonality. They both believe that there is nothing that bloodshed cannot cure. King Herod orders the slaughter of the innocents after the Magi disappear, shedding the blood of babies. Herod's will protect his kingdom. He will have the glitter. And the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled. Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they are not. King Jesus will shed his own blood, hanging on a Roman gibbet, and above his head, the ironic charge, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yet even as his blood soaks into the ground at the foot of the cross, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The blood of King Jesus is the price of our citizenship. Martin Franzman wrote, the story of the Magi is both the fulfillment of prophecy and itself a prophecy. Israel remained indifferent to her king and rejects him. 
the good news of his reign goes to the Gentiles, to you and I. You and I have been baptized in the bloody font. We've seen the star and heard the call to worship. The Magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That joy is ours today and every day. To worship is no hardship. It's simply our response. Recall Boole's definition. Worship is everything you do toward God as a reaction of his mercy towards us. It is quite simply our life, this side of the font. We began this morning in confession and mercy received, the word of absolution. We continued as we heard the word read and proclaimed, mercy delivered, you are redeemed, bought with a price. And soon we will come to the rail and bend the knee, pros koneo, literally kiss the source of mercy, the given flesh and the shed blood of King Jesus. This is worship within the context of the divine service. But our worship does not end with the benediction. It simply changes venue. Worship is everything done to assist the mission team going to the DR. Worship is every cup of applesauce and box of raisins and granola bar given in a backpack program. Worship is every like and share and link forwarded in our social ministry outreach. Worship is not passing by the stranger that asks for help, especially when he or she is not a stranger and you question the circumstances, especially then. Worship is to see King Jesus in that individual and give aid. Worship is a life lived under the star. The call to worship answered. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.